welcome to the Asimov cast. Short burst of joy, thoughtfulness and inspiration from the works of Isaac Asimov. I'm Lossie. Follow the show on Blue Sky and Instagram at Asimovcast or email to asimovcast at gmail.com. And welcome back to season two where we will continue to review the stories loosely covered in the first two seasons of the Apple TV adaptation of Foundation. The first book, Foundation, was published in 1951. This episode is The Mayors, and I am delighted to be rejoined by my good friend Tessa. What did I describe you as, professional science fiction nerd or like qualified uh, science fiction? <laughs> I, I mean, I, I would say uh, professional, like I was a scholar like at one point yeah. <laughs> studying, but yeah, either's probably fine. Um, okay. Hi, te- hi, Tessa. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> Um, glad to be back. Uh, wonderful. Um, so this will be a, a experiment. We're going to try a couple of episodes where I try and talk to people about the the chapters rather than just monotone my way through uh, uh, recaps. Podcasting uh, so with other people we'll see, so much easier. <laughs> so yes, tr- yes. Very uh, true. For all those, uh, if, if you, I hope you're enjoying it. But yes, believe me, it's a lot easier yep. with other people. <laughs> So Tessa, do you want to give us? I think we talked more sort of generically about Asimov and robots specifically um, when we last spoke. But do you want to give me a little bit of your background with Foundation specifically? Yeah. Um, so funnily enough, because yeah, we did focus last time more on uh, his robot um, science fiction. I definitely started there when I was probably a very young teenager. I think probably like thirteen or fourteen. I my dad like got the first iRobot collection like on tape or something and we listened to it in the car. Yeah, right. Um nice. so we so I was more familiar with that part of his oeuvre than I was with Foundation. I had a friend though um probably only a couple years after that who said, "Well, if you like iRobot, you should read his other series." Um foundation and they're like connected in in some interesting ways and so i was like all right well i'll start reading this i don't know what i was expecting but this is a very different series than i robot but i remember really <laughs> liking it um i read probably most of the collections of books that were available to me at the library at the time uh, i haven't really read it since then so like you know it it's one of those things where i've definitely read the first book a couple of times but the rest of them i have like very vague memories of so it's been a while, but I do remember really liking it the first time I read it. Yeah, it's a really interesting set because the three core question mark core foundation books are as basically a series of short stories all taking place within the same timeline. And then he writes two novels off the back of them, which is Foundation's Edge and Foundation and Earth, which is when he starts tying everything back to uh, all the robot books. And then he subsequently writes two prequel novels uh, called uh, Prelude to Foundation and Forward the Foundation. So it's um, it, it's an interesting comparison. The these the story we'll talk about today and these sort of original three stories or three books, I should say, because there's multiple stories within them. Um, I think I don't think he ever. Well, maybe he did, but. 
they were never written as robot books. They were they were written as foundation books, as a separate thing. And then he just went, "I'm going to tie everything into the same world." Um, as as is the Vogue. Uh, yes, <laughs> some people he do. was doing it before <laughs> everyone else does. Uh, <laughs> yes. So another way that Asimov is is revolutionary. I I will say that I think it's the Prelude books that I haven't read. I think I've read the rest right. of them. I knew there was a few that I had missed. This does fall into a very common 50s sci-fi tradition of we published yes. a bunch of short stories. Now let's sell them as a collection. Um, but I think it's fun to read them this way. I don't I'm not as familiar with like 1950s magazine, you know, conventions or anything like that. So, you know, mm. to me, it feels more like a cohesive story, albeit one that's being told over a huge time frame, much larger than the time frame of most books or even series of short stories like this. So it it is very different in some ways than the other sci-fi of its time, but in other ways it's like, yes, this is a very recognizable format. Like this is exactly what I would expect this to look like. Yeah, I think it's interesting because effectively he I mean, if this were conceived of as a novel rather than a series of short stories in a in the same sort of timeline i don't believe anyone would have the discipline to keep it keep the stories as tight as they are i think all the stories are really short periods of time there's no you know you jump in in media res basically in into what's happening into the crisis or into you know two three weeks before the crisis and then you play through the crisis and then it ends with harry selden which we'll talk about uh just showing up and saying look how smart i am <laughs> look how much i knew beforehand um yeah. yeah i i also think i you know it's interesting because i know that you and i have discussed doing a, a hugo's app when the nominations um before the nominations close and uh which i got dates for so we should figure that out after this episode but I saw I saw the Glasgow going. Yes. Uh, here are the dates, and also we will tell you if someone gets why someone got disqualified. Yes, this like time. there's some there's some shit that went down um, in the last year. So yeah, I it's interesting because I was just talking to someone about how I think that introducing characters in a relatively short and concise amount of time and making you care about them and making you like be like I know who this person is. That's a gift. Like that is that's a talent that is very much honed by short story writers, especially. Um, so, you mm -hmm. know, there are people that I think accomplish this really well. And I think Asimov is one of them where, you know, most of these characters don't, with the exception maybe of the encyclopedists and the mayors, most of these characters don't carry over from story to story, right? Like the only continuity you really have is the foundation uh Plot, I guess that, that sounds like it's much more sinister yeah. than it is, but it is kind of sinister, which we should <laughs> talk about. Um, and Harry Selden, like those are like that's like the connecting yeah. tissue. And so that's hard. That's hard to invest people in. Right. Because people like characters. That's why we like stories. We like to know who these people are. We like to try to relate to them or we like to hate them. You know, it's like whatever, whatever it is that makes you feel things about characters. Um, I was just reading a, a novelette that I won't mention. I'll talk more about it when we do our episode but that was my main complaint where i was like this is 24 pages and the ideas are really interesting but i can't tell you any of the names of the characters <laughs> you know like i don't know who yeah. these people are i don't know why i should care about them um 
But Asimov pulls it off. He somehow balances this plot that spans, you know, a, you know, the idea is it'll span a thousand years, right? But he still makes you very invested in these characters and they have such distinct voices that you're like, yes, this is this person. This is why I care about this person. Yeah, and I th- I mean, it's specifically the, the challenge of adaptation, particularly to TV or, or oh, movies yeah. that, you, you know, if you are saying to someone, hey, we're basically, I mean, it's almost an anthology, as you say, in this case, Harry, Sel- Harry Seldon is in each one, but really, you get uh, Salvo Hardin in the last story, and you get Salvo Hardin in this story, and that's pretty much it, other than references to those characters uh, across the other ones. I mean, I do think Asimov himself gets bored with the with the conceit which is why after after effectively i think it's about you know spoilers for if you if you haven't read foundation before and you are coming to this podcast somehow and you don't know me which would be a miracle <laughs> frankly <laughs> um then yes he, he sort of gets to about three four hundred years and then he goes off into the novella or the novels which which are more, much more classic sci-fi in terms of just following a cast of characters through a series of adventures um but it is a, you know it, it's he got <clears throat> excuse me he got further than um Sufjan Stevens did with his 50 state project let's just put it <laughs> Yeah, and I think I haven't seen the Foundation show. I I need to. It's been on my okay. list forever. I just haven't had the time to actually sit down and watch it. I was very curious how they were going to adapt this. Um, I did see part of an episode. So correct me if I'm wrong. A lot of it's time jumping, right? Like there's a lot of like back and forth time shifts. So they have. I would say three core things they've done to in adaptation to allow characters to continue on. Um, number one is uh, the way they've brought the emperor uh, in, which is completely not what 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 is in the books at all. But they've created the emperor um, almost doesn't matter three... <laughs> in the books. No, he, he he doesn't really. The but they've created this threefold emperor. Um, you know. Uh, Dusk, sorry, dawn, day, and dusk, uh, of which day is the part played by Lee Pace, uh, and they are clones and they repeat over time, and and it's it's also used very well in the same way um, the books do to talk about that uh, decay of society because it's stagnated. Um, then they also they find a way to resurrect uh, Harry Seldon, which is a thing i don't really like but i understand why they did it um (laughs) as part of the of the show and so he sort of persists through this and then they also have a character who has gone into cryosleep a couple of times and that's sort of that's the gal dornick character um and that's again an adaptation choice and you know i have and we'll get into this particularly when we talk about the mayors and particularly when we talk about Salvor Hardin. My biggest issue is the adaptation choice on Salvor Hardin, who is fundamentally just a different character in the show. Okay. Uh, but but you, but you, I respect the fact that you fundamentally have to change the story to adapt it to television. It just, it just would not work in the way that the, the television as a medium, as a commercial medium rather than as a storytelling medium would work. Absolutely. Right and I think... I mean, again, everything part of this makes sense as a series of short stories. So, like, you can't 
you you can't really can't adapt it without making those those types of changes. Um, but yeah, no, I I really enjoy the way that he writes this as a series. I think that a lot of the themes are really interesting. Um, I think the story about I'm sure you've talked about this since you've been um, talking about the beginning of of the foundation. Um, I think it's interesting the idea that he just came up with this after like looking at a Roman history textbook, um, you know, like what <laughs> yeah. if, you know, which it, that's where the best sci-fi ideas come from. Um, you know, what if this was different? So yeah, I, I like it conceptually. I have some issues with it, which we will talk about that I have now that I probably didn't when I was a teenager. Um, but for the most part, it's, it's so well-written and it's one of those things where it's just, it's very, uh, for me, it feels very cozy sci-fi. Like, you know, I'm going to read this and it's going to, you know, it's going to do these things. It's going to have this tone because that's the tone of the time. I'm going to be introduced to cool characters. You know, I'm going to have a good time. There aren't going to be any women. Yes. As long as you accept there are no women (laughs) in these stories. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, not yeah, even wives. Uh, like, I mean, that's that's what's crazy to me. It's like, genuinely crazy, right? <laughs> like uh, it's it's yeah. really it is it's really bad, and it's I definitely think it's something that Asimov realized um, later in his life, and you see it in his 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 stories he wrote in the seventies, and you see it in the later Foundation stories as well. But you know, it's it's such. Um, it's such a sign of patriarchy as a societal factor that he just didn't because I don't think Asimov is is any more sexist or misogynistic than than any anyone else growing up in the sort of 20s 30s 40s. I just think he he didn't think about it. It didn't, never even occurred to him to put to make some of these characters uh, women and it's more an indictment of the, of the society and of the time than it is of him. It's a, it's a lack of imagination, right? It's this idea that yes. if you if you've never seen women represented in these types of situations, it's difficult for you to imagine that that they would be in those situations in the future. Um and so yep. and in some ways I feel like it is actually I mean this is this is kind of an odd thing to say, but in some ways, I don't think Hart, uh, Asimov ever thought about women in the future. And I, I don't think it's necessarily that women don't exist in this world. They do. It's just that for him, there is just no like connection between like the women that exist now and the ones that are in the future. They're just sort of there. Um, and so it's it's interesting to to see this as well. I wonder, we both like Anne McCaffrey. I wonder if she like yelled at yeah. him about it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure she did. She definitely imagines yeah. women in the future, um, having all sorts yeah, of. Yeah, and, and she writes. Yeah, she writes them riding dragons, fighting and fucking, and yeah, that, exactly. More what more do you want? Doing <laughs> <laughs> Very little. Um, uh, yeah. Anyway, I think we're we. I think we touched on this uh, last time we spoke. Anyway, so so it's perhaps not worth retreading, but it is just notable. And I think your point about it the foundation and the the fall of the roman empire is very very clear and you know randomly my uh, eldest child asked me today what what are the dark ages that's and so I was like, funny <laughs> yeah <laughs> so i was like okay well right firstly we're talking about europe here yeah <laughs> but um 
but yes, anyway, so it's um, it's very interesting how that then maps to to foundation and and the, this attempt to go from thirty thousand years of darkness question quote quote unquote darkness to a thousand years and you know what the similar similar sort of things are in the epochs of humanity which is in our relatively short span at least within the european context you know a long period of time where there was stagnation and decay mm-hmm. yeah and absolutely and there's a lot there's a lot of that in this story as well a lot of examinations of that idea. Yeah. Okay. Right. On that basis, I think we shall uh, kick on into the plot. Uh, so unlike uh, the previous episodes, I'm not just going to sort of run through uh, a full <laughs> a full recap. Um, I'll just break it down into the chapters and then we'll, we'll talk about each chapter. So our first chapter is uh, more or less, actually, all these chapters are quite interesting. More of them are just, more or less, all of them are two-handers. They are two characters speaking to each other in a scene. It's almost a play. It's people talking. Frankly. Yeah, it, like, that is this yeah. whole story. There is one moment of, like, real action, and it's the yeah. number seven. Um, but that, but even that is mostly talking, <laughs> like... Yeah. It's mostly screaming. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Okay, so our first um, our first chapter is uh, Salvon Harden uh, receiving Cermak. So uh, Harden is still mayor um, thirty years after the last uh, um, uh, the last book, and he receives a delegation of younger council members who are unhappy with what they see as a, a foreign policy of appeasement to the other. Um, local periphery so anacreon that we met in the in the encyclopedists as well as smyrno and a couple of other smaller places that basically um don't get don't get name recognition um and he's done that by um supplying atomic power and expertise to maintain that atomic power to all of those neighbors uh, he basically went on a tour of them all uh, to to tell them, hey, are you comfortable with Anacreon just being the only one who've, who's got this? Uh, which is how they sort of used the balance of power off off the last story to uh, to uh, maintain their independence. Um, but he's set this up and uh, with a couple of colleagues has basically created a religion around it. So they are all supplied. Um, the um, interaction, uh, interesting. Cermak is very hot-headed and young and maybe a bit naive but probably has some legitimate gripes with Hardin. Hardin is somewhat patronizing and um again like the fact that he's been mayor for 30 seemingly been mayor for 30 years seems somewhat insane um <laughs> to me. You didn't put term um, limits on that. Yeah, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I <laughs> Like even Putin could would struggle to get thirty years. Thirty years, years is a long so. time, yeah. Um, and I, because of things that we'll talk about later, I'm kind of looking at Lee a little suspiciously here. I'm like, I feel like maybe there was some some election rigging happening here. But this yeah interaction, this first interaction, it it works to like. Show, remind us who Hardin is. It works to show like how things have changed since the last story. Um, and of course it gives Asimov, because this would have been published as its own story somewhere else, it gives Asimov a chance to be like, hey, if you missed the first two parts, here's what happened. 
So it works in that regard. I will say this interaction made me really uncomfortable in the light of a lot of current generational shifts that are happening politically right now. A lot of the things that Cermak and his posse, I guess, um, believe <laughs> are things that are being said right now about people who are currently in power, right? Like that they're ineffective, that they're not do actually doing anything, um, you know, to help these things. I, it does, Harden does come across as really arrogant and extremely patronizing. And like, I think if we hadn't seen him succeed in the last story, he would be like a villainous character. But because we saw him succeed yes. and we've been following him longer, we're like, these young kids, they don't know what they're doing. You know, like, <laughs> but I, I don't think that that's necessarily a given, you know, either. You know, there yeah. does seem to be sort of this balance of like, maybe they are right. You know, maybe maybe he isn't, you know, necessarily knows everything, you know. But. Yeah, I mean, he was, he was... I don't think he's changed that much. He was pretty obnoxious and smug in the in the, the so encyclopedias as well. <laughs> um, I think he loves being right. I think interesting he does, and he definitely is a sure uh, a, a certain of his own uh, rectitude. <laughs> I think the interesting thing is Lee basically telling him that he's keeping his cards too close to his chest, mm-hmm. and I think that's the. It's almost the shame of this, right? Is that he dismisses Cermak as basically being too hot-headed, and he he repeats his his maxim of um, violence being the last refuge of the incompetent. Lee has a little bit of like a hmm, somewhat hypocritical oh, <laughs> about about a about that, and 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 also mm, not sure that's true either, um, but. Selden, sorry, um, Hardin, this is another point I'm going to come up later, so I'm just going to bring it in now. The fact that he's called Selvor Hardin, and there's also Harry Selden, those names are way too close. <laughs> I think he's supposed to be the Selden stand-in for the beginning of this. Yeah. I don't think every story has a Selden stand-in, but I think for these first couple, Asimov really wanted to like push this idea across of what was happening. Yeah, I, and I think it. I think the one thing that, if you compare it to the encyclopedists, the encyclopedists, Hardin is the person of action, and the encyclopedists are the quote unquote appeasers, and the perception Cermak here has here is almost that of Hardin when he was younger, which is that now the difference here is that Hardin is competent and knows what he's doing as he very much is happy to tell everyone <laughs> that he knows what he's doing. Um, but that, um, that, uh, th- that, that's, that Cermak has fallen into the role that Hardin was in, in the previous one of, of, you know, accusing this person in power of being an appeaser of basically, you know, allowing this thing. Uh, my frustration with it is just like, is the frustration I have with the, the constant, trope of characters withholding information for no real reason like there's no reason why because Cermak seems like a smart person who under who gets it he's just a bit of a hothead there is no reason why Hardin doesn't tell him a little bit more information or doesn't explain things like what's going on with the religion and the priests and, and so on and so forth he basically is just like 
stop bothering me i know what i'm doing yeah. and it, literally he almost says like the government is of the opinion that it knows what it's doing which yeah. is kind of him talking about himself in the in the third person as well he just he laughed he the, the thing about harding is that he always seems like he's laughing at whoever he's talking to yeah. like even someone like lee who he clearly like respects and has this long-running relationship with he still kind of sounds like he's laughing at him half the time yeah, and I kind of like that. I like the fact that he is obnoxious. I like the fact that Asimov is is not writing characters that are just vanilla and, um, you know, e- just obviously a paragon of uh, of moral virtue, but someone who's got the moral failings of being a little bit smug and a little bit self righteous and a little bit know it all. Someone tries to kill him by the end of this story because he's so smug. <laughs> Like, I was like, relatable, very relatable. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Okay, anything more on this chapter? Um, I honestly, I will say this is a good opening for me because I feel like it does a really good job of like concisely explaining all the information you need to know, but it never feels exposition-y because it is a conversation. And I really appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah, it feels natural. It doesn't feel like people just expositing for the sake of it, which is p- perhaps what if, you know, that that criticism I had of like he could explain a little bit more about what's going on. Maybe if he did, that would have, would have seemed uh, less like it. But it does a great job of basically catching us up with the last 30 years in three pages. Yeah, basically. I will say that Hardin is very concerned with how much information everyone should know. In fact, he kind of feels that he knows too much information, which, by the way, sounds like a very underhanded way of saying, I'm really smart. Uh, But he... So that's, like, the only... That's the only explanation I have for why maybe he doesn't say as much as he could, but he does cut it really close um, in some ways. Because yeah. it is hard to have confidence in somebody who is not telling you information in a scary situation. Yeah, and is quite clearly withholding. Mm-hmm. Okay, so our next chapter is Hardin meets uh, Polly Verisov, uh, who's going under a um, great name. Um, more on him later. But um, he goes under a fake name, which is much less interesting than Polly Verisov, so I'm not going to say it now. That's nothing to do with the fact that I didn't write it in the notes. <laughs> it's like John um, Smith, the uh, equivalent. Po- po- <laughs> <laughs> so, so he has a meeting with him. Polly is the high priest of the foundation, um, stroke the ambassador to Anacreon. So he basically just gives uh, Salvor a briefing of what's going on in Anacreon. Um, the fact that there is a current regent called Venus, Vinus, Vinus. I'm going to say that there's too much Anacreon that's a bit Germany, so I think it's supposed to be a the rather than a were. Um, I think that um, particularly the way it's like lots of tiny little feudal states as well. Um, the fact that um, he pretty much killed the previous king and bumped off a few other people, and that he's acting as regent for his nephew Leopold, again quite a German name. Um, who should be coming into age and his kinghood in, in a couple of months, if he lasts that long. Um, and the other fact is that they found an old Imperial battleship, which is a proper big old shooty scary ship. And Venus is basically uh, wanting the Foundation to fix it up for him. Or else, Christian. 
is the implicit. Yeah, I also really found this conversation to be interesting, partially because I really like stories, both sci-fi and fantasy, that have societies or groups of people who are building on technology that predates them. And so even though Mm. Foundation is probably closer to this technology than the Four Kingdoms are, they're still, you know, they're still being like, oh, well, we're salvaging technology. Like, we've gotten to the point where we're like, they're not really able to produce, at least not like giant battleships. And so finding something like this and restoring it, I think is a very interesting plot point. Um, But also, I have to say, um, oh, no, well, I'll wait on that one. I I thought also this was interesting because Polly Verisoft seems to know more of what Hardin's planning than anyone else. And the yeah. implication is that he may have like threatened to go on strike basically <laughs> to Hardin because Hardin is like, I didn't even want to tell you this much, but like, you know, I had to because you were like not going to be on board or whatever. So it is interesting. Well, it's it's mentioned later that um, Polly was originally um, an action, one of the actionists. Right. So he was actually aligned with the group uh, that Cermak is sort of leader of now. So one of the action parties. So I think basically Hardin kind of did for Polly what he's not yet perhaps doing for Cermak, which is basically bring him over effectively provide a bit more information and understanding of what it is they're trying to do and, and kind of you know convert him effectively to the not to to the church of Hardin, the church of the church Hardin which is not actually that far off from what what he's actually doing which is this the the creation yeah. and the sustaining of this religion that they've come up with i did really love so I will say that Asimov isn't great at describing like what people are wearing or like what, you know, like what the scenery is necessarily. You kind of have to infer yeah. things uh, or like fill that in with your imagination. I did love that Polly basically left Anacreon and traveled very openly to the foundation just by taking his costume off. <laughs> and it made it made me <laughs> yes. like really want to know what the costume like what what do the priests look like like what's their what's I mean he said he actually talked to someone who knew him and like that person did not recognize him at all. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and that person sort of gave him a lecture on like uh, how the priesthood works and stuff. Um, yeah, it's very uh, Clark Kent taking his uh, glasses yeah, off. Yeah, I'm and... imagining something very elaborate. <laughs> Uh, I think it's. I think they say their robes are red, and that's pretty. Yeah, that's much all. The only that's all he really gives us is that they're red. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. maybe they have those like Star Wars, like the hoods that like go over their face or whatever, like the red guards or the helmets or whatever. I don't know. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the the Imperial Guard mm-hmm. in. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, I liked. It. I'm going to choose to think of them like that, even though I've seen uh, an adaptation of Polly Verisoff and he looks nothing like that. that yeah, but all, it would so. be a cool image for so, sure. Yeah. Uh, right. So our next chapter uh, jumps over to Anacreon, and it's uh, Venus and Leopold. Uh, basically, Leopold wants to hunt, uh, and Venus is basically like, "No, you can't hunt. You need to focus on the fact." that the you need to invade the foundation because they're going to kill us all basically um and leopold is not not on 
well, he's he's willing to listen to this and willing to get involved with it, uh, or he's relatively easily manipulated into it. But he is sort of has this fear, inbuilt fear of the religion, inbuilt fear of the priest and and of of uh, Hardin. So uh, he has to be talked around a little bit. It's um, yeah. <laughs> It's an awesome... it's an interesting chapter. We don't get a lot of like villain chapters from Asmoff. Uh, usually, yeah. if there is a villain, you just the interactions are like between the villain and somebody else. It's very rarely this type of scene. Um, I feel like Leopold is very easily manipulated. He seems like a bored teenager, to be completely honest with you. Yeah, uh, he's only really oh. interested in hunting, and he, which I would. I would love to watch an adaptation of that. It sounds like a very interesting, like, like you're like in the air, but you have needle guns. Anyway, it just sounded really interesting to me. Um, but I think he's also scared of his uncle because even if he doesn't yes. know that his uncle killed his father, there's definitely this like undertone of like, yeah, your father died suddenly and you could too, you know, like um, situation <laughs> going on here. But I also just think that like, uh, Venus knows how to pull his strings. Like he knows how to like push the right yeah. buttons to get the right result. Um, I will say though, the way Venus is described physically is very unfortunate. Um, I think Polly Verisoft describes him to Harden, and then he's described again in this chapter, and he's described as like being very dark complected and having um, like dark hair and he's kind of sullen looking. He has a big hooked nose. All of this just kind of mm. feels weird to point out um, in a villain, especially um, because especially because so much of this book, and I want to talk more about this later is aligned with this idea that the foundation is against darkness and like, we're trying to civilize these people and so, like, just the way he's described physically, it does sound very, like, we're creating this, like, kind of sullen, kind of racialized character who is also evil. So it's... And his sons are described the same way. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he's... he's it's an, Yeah, I mean, you're right. He's, he's also a very one-note villain. Yeah. Like, he's just... And the the um, the era the they're described as as quote unquote barbarians, which is what um, they were described as by the emperor's sort of uh, ambassador in in uh, in the encyclopedias. And in that story, you have you have an emperor's ambassador who's very he's almost sort of a feat English coded, I would say, yes. <laughs> because of the way he talks. Um, uh, which is, you know, again a choice. So, yeah, it's it's not great. He's he's a very the that is the, I would say the one one shortcoming of this story is that he's not a very interesting villain. No. He's he's just, just a guy who wants like, to. He just wants power. You know, like, and yeah. he's going to use his nephew to do that. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Uh. Okay, shall we move on to the next chapter? So then you have a chapter with Sermak and Bort. Uh, Bort is uh, one of the other members of the Action Party. Sorry, Bort is a great name. name. I, it's uh, like a name you'd find in Futurama. <laughs> like, I, it's great. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
uh, he's a head in a jar next to Richard Nixon. Yeah, exactly. Um, and <laughs> <laughs> um, so they're discussing what the Action Party can do about the current situation. Uh, they basically uh, frustrated with the fact that the uh, the Foundation Religion, the authoritarian authoritarian Foundation Religion that Hardin has sort of encouraged, uh, kind of seems to work, which is obviously very annoying. Um, that it it puts the local king as the as kind of the head of the religion. It uh, makes uses lots of tricks and uh, and things to make it look like he glows and like if you approach him, you'll burn and he can fly, uh, which all the people on Terminus think are gimmicks, and of course they are. But it's not for them, right? It's it's for the masses, and and it works. And uh, Borta's like, well, you can't. You can't, <laughs> you can't overthrow a god yeah. like that. Yeah, it doesn't work. We can't we can't do what we thought um, we were going to do? And to be fair, kind of to connect. First of all, I actually thought this was clever having this chapter because I thought that Cermak was going to be a very one note. Like he's just there to like provide an internal mm. threat to Harden. But the fact that we actually get another chapter, basically, where it's just him and Bort talking is very interesting to me because we do get to see more of like what is aggravating the action party party so much about Hardin's policies. And I don't think that they're wrong, especially because Hardin has been so withholding of like this information about what he's yeah. going to do with this religion that if from the outside, if you didn't know what he was doing or you couldn't guess what he was doing, it would kind of seem like he he basically handed he reinvented the divine right of kings and gave it to your enemies like you know like that and that's yeah. a that's like an that's a a very complex and very powerful idea that can be used against you in these ways um which they correctly identify yeah the the frustrating thing for me about them is that you kind of are like if you know that these are tricks, why why aren't you asking the next question, which is why is he doing this? They 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 take it purely at face value, and the, then they the fact that uh, Harden is going to Anacreon for the king's coronation, they think is proof of his treachery, which doesn't really ring true to me. Like that's a bit of a leap. Like he's one of your four four allies. Why wouldn't you visit him? So there there's. They have an arrogance about their own entitlement, oh, their yeah. their right to be the sort of the the true rulers, right? So, yeah, so they 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 do jump on Hardin for going to Anacreon, and then they want to impeach him for it. Again, I don't feel like going to Anacreon is an impeachable offense. It feels a bit weird. Um, they so, jump to the I, the thirty pieces of silver thing very quickly. Like, there's there's yeah. not really another explanation and honestly i i think that what harden does is genius honestly i do for what he's trying to achieve but it's not if you thought about it from a foundation perspective like you said from somebody who knows that this is not a real religion i don't think it's that hard to figure out what harden's doing um, yeah. And so, yeah, it does really yeah. feel and there and I think Harden makes like some kind of like snarky comment about this later. It does really feel like Cermak and Bort are inventing things to be mad about, um, which feels 
again, it makes me a little uncomfortable because it's not that we don't know people who do this. Like people do make up things to be angry about, but it does also feel like a Asimov as an older person being like these kids, like they like they don't actually care about like their causes. They just want to be angry, you know, like, oh, the energy of youth. Um, you know, it kind of yes. does feel a little like old fogey. Um, and that's really unfortunate. Yeah, it's a tough one because if we were presented with other people or other kids, right, then it would be different. But because we're not, because we're just given these ones, it does then come across as, I mean, Asimov was 30 when he wrote this. Like, he wasn't that old. Yeah. So, yeah, it's... We also don't really get to see yeah, what the rest of the population of Terminus really thinks about any of this. Yeah, that's what, that's what and, I mean. So, yeah. so like, the one line that, that uh, Hardin has that I think is valid is when Somax like, I represent the will of the people, and... Uh, Hardin is something says something like um, that would be that would be a useful statement if it were backed up. With <laughs> yeah, you actually evidence. have to tell. Yeah, you actually have to prove this. Yeah, I I think that's yeah. true, and it did also make me wonder how many of the people on Terminus actually think about this day to day. You know, like because I'm sure yeah. there's just a ton of people who don't think about the foundation as this grand project, who don't think about you know, how these uh, kingdoms are played against, you know, it's not like what Hardin even yeah. does at the end is like televised for like the, you know, the rest of Terminus to know about. They're just kind of, they just want to get through the day, right? Like they just want to like do whatever their job is, and go home and, you know, like, so it's really interesting to me that really when Asimov is writing about the foundation, he's looking at actually a very small group of people um, as his set of characters and not really telling us a lot about how the population in general feels. Yeah, and I think we can come into that later just in terms of what psychohistory yeah. is and, and what his conceit of psychohistory is. Um, but uh, yeah, let, so anyway, they, they discover he's going to Anacreon and decide that he's sold them out and uh, are going to impeach him for it or attempt to. Um, the next chapter is then Lee telling Hardin that they did this and that they lost a vote, but it was closer than Hardin expected it to be. Um, Hardin basically like, calm down. In three weeks, it's going to be the 80th anniversary of, of the foundation. I suspect this is a, a crisis. The reason it's a, I think it's a crisis is because we're being forced closer and closer into there not being any other choice in terms of what we do. Again, I think we can touch on what that means later. Um, and so I think there's going to be a crisis. I also think that means that Harry Seldon will appear again. So you tell everyone that Harry is going to appear in three weeks and that will get everyone to calm down whilst I go off and do my th shit. What Hardin's doing here is its own rel religious manipulation because yes. Harry, despite the fact that no one on Terminus believes in this religion that they've created for the Four Kingdoms, they do. Harry Seldon is the closest thing to a religious figure that they have. So the idea of being like yeah. he's going to reappear, like he has something to say, that is that's its own version of what he's doing in the Four Kingdoms. It's just a lot more subtle in in Terminus. Yeah, and I think it's a reflection of what happens in um, 
in the previous story as well. In that, in the previous story, the encyclopedias bounce from a faith in their sort of charter to a faith in the empire to a faith in Harry Seldon to fix things for them. And um, Salvor is basically manipulating this in this story. So he's, he's manipulating this uh, spiritual to, uh, as it's described at the end of it, to the spiritual to, to um, overpower the temporal. And he's using Harry Seldon against the foundationists, the, t- the people in Terminus, and he's using Harry Seldon in a different guise, effectively, in terms of the, the foundation religion against the sort of four kingdoms or however you want to Exactly. Um, this chapter also made me really glad that Lee was not in charge because this person basically, his answer to every single problem is coup, coup again. Uh, so, I mean, I think if it was up to Lee, Hardin would be like king of Terminus, like, and that would just be. Yes. <laughs> and I like your point in that he's probably done some of that yeah. as well. Like, he's, he's basically the, the chief of secret he police. He talks a little bit too much about his, like, police state that he's got going on. Uh, I will say, though, I do love their relationship because it really does seem like Lee, because like, Lee doesn't want power for himself. Like, he wants it for Harden. And it, it makes no. me just, like, laugh a little bit the way he's just, like, willing to do anything to make that happen. <laughs> it, it is the closest thing to a romantic relationship. Well, that, that we either have of them the have, I think. I think they're the both, thing. like, yeah. yeah, I don't think that they have anybody yeah. else. <laughs> just each other. Uh, right, so um, as as we said, uh, Hardin heads to Anacreon for the um, uh, for the crowning or coronation is the word for that. Um, so he um, he basically is sort of not really announcing himself, but wandering around. Uh, Renus um, intercepts him and brings him into um, into his chambers to basically measure. Dicks, oh yeah, um, that is what happens. <laughs> chapter yeah um so venus is uh telling hardin that uh he is going to invade foundation that he's launched or terminus that he's launched a strike against them that the spaceship the, the imperial cruiser that they foolishly um re uh rehabbed for him um uh, is going to going to take them down and hardin is basically like yes um I thought you were going to do that uh, at midnight because that would be a bit more obvious, but I guess uh, you're not as romantic as me. Um, anyway, I'm going to do this do this year at midnight. Uh, so the priesthood are now going to put your whole world under interdiction and you will have no power, no light, no electricity, no water, no communication. No divinity uh, either. It's, it's kind the, of a fun... The aura yeah, goes no divinity, well. yeah. It is a hilarious interaction because... Uh, Venus is just so like gloaty against like Harden, and you just know you just know that's not going to work out well for him. But Harden himself is <laughs> yeah. kind of being like really snarky about it. Yeah, the whole like w- it would have been more dramatic the other way, like if you had done it at midnight. And I think at one point Venus is like, "Oh, like stop talking about the religion, like save that for the mob or whatever." And Hardin's like, who do you think I am saving it for? Like that—that that mob is going to be the thing that like gets me what I want. Like, 
I think I think it's even better. I think he says something like, "My dear, who do you yeah. think I'm saving <laughs> it for?" Like you don't understand what is being done here. You don't understand the point of the religion. And I think it, it's it's a it's an interesting echo between Venus and and Lefkin in the next chapter, and also Sir Mag is that they they see through the religion for what it is, which is mummery, uh, as Hardin outwardly states it is to the other terminus citizens. Uh, but don't understand what the purpose of it is. Don't understand how it works. It's um, mob control, and basically. I think it's yeah, it's mob yeah. control. It is exactly that. Yeah. Um. Anyway, so uh, as you say, the um, aura that was around the king disappears <laughs> in the uh, um, uh, and then we jump to the battle cruiser. And Apparat, who's the lead priest on it, basically goes on the um, goes on the communication and says that the ship is engaged in sacrilege, is now cursed, nothing will work, and then nothing works. So he follows through on his threat. Uh, he goes to the command deck to uh, take uh, control from Lefkin, who's one of uh, Venus's children. Uh, who is basically exactly as snug, smug and obnoxious as he's, and he's a Venus clone. Venus. He, he's literally Venus, just the yeah, younger version. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, so Apparat basically uh, says uh, no, um, and everyone on the ship uh, sides with their religion and with their gods, and so they beat the crap <laughs> out of Lefkin and make and and force him to do a broadcast basically saying uh i'm so sorry for the sacrilege that we did uh this is terrible we need to arrest my dad <laughs> i i really like that this is apparat and not uh polly because apparat Polly, is, yeah. is a true believer like he actually believes this yeah. it's not just like a foundation person putting on a show for the mob it is like an actual person who believes that what the ship is doing is sacrilege so I I appreciated yeah. that because it felt a lot more genuine, I think, that this was like a a person. They didn't even have to like really do anything. They just knew that this person would react this way. And I also really like that Hardin, Hardin basically called it going on strike. So like it, it, there is sort of this yes. union language around the priesthood as well, like that they're like there are a group <laughs> of people who can go on strike. And unfortunately, as we'll talk about later, yeah. The way that that's been intertwined with like essential systems means that they have a lot of power. Yeah. Um, anyway, so we cut back to Venus and Hardin, and Hardin at possibly his most <laughs> smug, uh, bursting with smugness. <laughs> basically, <laughs> basically going, "I'm smarter than you. I told you so. Would you like to hear a children's story about how smart I am?" <laughs> Let me tell you a fable. So the one that that Hardin <laughs> tells is the horse, the hunter, and the wolf. So it's like about the yeah. like the horse getting the hunter to hunt the wolf with him, but then the hunter now has control over the horse, and it's like one of those ancient like this is how the horse became domesticated type of type of tales. But hmm. interestingly enough, what he's telling the fable he's telling is from Aesop's fables, and in that version, it's the horse, the hunter, and the stag instead of a wolf. I think there. This could be that this is a story that's been told a lot of different ways, and I just, you know, this is just one version of it. But I also kind of like the idea that maybe, like, 
Hardin knows the classics, but it's so far removed from its original context that like maybe they just have it like a little bit wrong. Like <laughs> like maybe like over yeah, the like years that. and years and years, you know, the stag changed into a wolf, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, the wolf is a is a notably like more threatening visual, at least than a stag who's just a horny yeah, exactly, horse. Exactly. Basically, right. Horny angry horse. Um <laughs> <laughs> we also get this really cool visual. Uh, this is probably the most exciting part of the story in terms of like action. Um, we get this really cool visual of Venus trying to kill Hardin and like the aura that was around the king like appears around Hardin. And so not only does that tell all these guards like, oh, this religion is real and it's about like this person, you know, he now has the divine right of kings or mm. whatever. Um, it's just a cool visual, though, I think, like the idea of him. It is cool visual. Like, personal shield. Yeah. And and Venus, yeah. So kind of like the shields you see on on. Yeah, Dune, I was thinking for about example. that. Yeah. But uh, but um, yeah, Venus tries to kill Hardin, fails completely, and so kills himself. Tidy. Instead. Which. Is, yeah, which is which is neat. Yeah, as you say, neat for yeah. storytelling purposes. <laughs> you don't actually have to deal with like putting this person in prison. Like. <laughs> um. Anyway, the final chapter is then a conversation between Hardin and Lee. Uh, basically, Harry Seldon appears, validates everything that Hardin's been doing, uh, talks about the fact that they that rather than the balance power, which was the previous uh, crisis, that they've this was about leveraging spiritual power over temporal power, um, and um, that that won't work anymore. So they need to basically evolve. Uh, and um, so and uh, Hardin is smug and then happy that he doesn't have to do another one. I, I did love that where he was like, hopefully by the time the next one happens, we'll be dead and I will not have to deal with this. So and I love that attitude. Yeah. That's a good attitude. He's done enough. Again, he's like one of the few people that appears across multiple stories. So it. Yeah, yeah he's he's solved two crises. I think <laughs> he's done enough. That's fine. I, I would really like to know if like. Sir Mac wins the next election, like, and he's like, I'm done. Like, it doesn't matter. I did what I'm supposed to do. <laughs> like, he goes, like, fucks off and retires somewhere. Yeah. Um, Sir Mac has pivoted from, uh, we should stop appeasing these people to, we should invade them and take yeah. them over, which is sort of, again, another indication that Sir Mac is actually quite an awful yeah. person. And, um, <laughs> I will say, the Selden thing, I never thought about this before reading it now, probably because I just didn't think about this stuff a lot when I was a teenager. The uh, the Harry Seldon stuff makes me laugh because I don't know why it exists other than to tell the audience Hardin was right and Sir Harry Seldon knew it the whole time because if he's trying to prevent them from foreknowledge, it's kind of weird that he would appear to them at all. Um, like that he would tell them anything about the future. But it... But if we if you didn't have it, it wouldn't be as satisfying as competence porn, um, because you wouldn't have that yeah. confirmation that oh yes, this person knew exactly what was going to happen, you know, however long ago, I guess eighty years at this point, right? Yeah, I think they're getting paragon paragon points for completing a mission. Basically, <laughs> there's the little like, uh, the little Xbox like chime. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so i think i think i think it is validation i think it's basically 
so uh, we can we can jump into this now because we we pretty much fi- finished the story but like uh salvor talks quite a bit about the fact that the point of a crisis is that they have to have got to a point where all other options were closed to them so they could only take one route forward and i'm not fully sure i by that it because there's still a lot of dependency on the fact that for example salvor is in charge and not uh Sir or, Mac or one Lee of the encyclopedias yeah or one of the encyclopedias still so so i think uh, i think the implication is that there's no way the encyclopedias could be in charge at this point because um uh because uh what would have had to have happened in the previous uh crisis would have also forced there to be um a a um yeah a non encyclopedist power in charge but the fact that it happened so closely to the minute uh, makes me uncomfortable yeah. <laughs> in terms of in terms of the conceit of psychohistory which is the sort of math of large numbers and the and the the sort of the the influence of crowds the the maths of cloud of crowds and the fact that that kind of i kind of buy that sort of as a conceit but there's a standard you know there's a deviation potential right like and and selden is like there's a 98 percent chance that this is right and i've had and i've hit the right time but as you say in that case other than it's a useful story framing device. What, why is what's he here? The, what's the yeah, I guess just to give them some yeah. legitimacy, encourage them. Um, yeah. I also wrote, how can we talk about how dramatic Selden is? He's like reading his book, like before and after every appearance. And it's a very like, oh, hi, I didn't see you there energy, even though he clearly recorded all of these at the same time. <laughs> like he just spent an afternoon like recording all these messages. it's a record scratch of guess you're wondering how you got here (laughs) i don't have to worry about it i'm dead um (laughs) it's just just very funny to me except he's not in In the the tv show show, yeah i guess that's interesting i i agree with you though i think that one of the issues that i have with this series and i think it's hard i think it's something that would be difficult to avoid actually while telling a story like this is that you're right, psychohistory as a concept, they stress that it doesn't rely on single individuals because there's no way to really tell how a single person is going to react to things. But there are trends when it comes to like groups of people. We can observe patterns repeating throughout history. Um, and so you, if you study history, you can kind of start seeing those patterns potentially in the future. The problem is, is that with this story specifically, None of this would have happened without Hardin. Like, he's the one who came up with the religion yeah. idea. He's the one who who made sure that it happened. He's the one who didn't tell anybody what he was doing. So, like, no one else really besides Polly, um, and even Polly didn't know everything, um, could really help him with this or could take over for him if something would, were to happen to him. So even though Selden is like, yes, you would have by now figured out about religious manipulation – you're still it still feels like he's relying on the idea that there's going to be at least one person smart enough to figure this out like or to take that specific path it it just it does still feel like yeah. it, and i think that it's hard because we as 
as readers really want characters we can invest in. And so it's really hard to tell stories about large groups. It's easier to tell stories about individual people, even though those two things are kind of at odds with each other in this story. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I I mean, I can kind of, I, I guess I could kind of no prize it by saying that, uh, as we find out in the previous story, um, Salvo was trained by a psychologist. He was the only psychologist that was on... Um, that was on Terminus and that he was one of Selden's confidants. So he was effectively a second foundationist. So maybe that psychologist handpicked effectively a, a single person like to do this. The fact that he was there, f- no, and which is very much, you know, a second foundation thing anyway, um, which we, we obviously we, we're not sort of made aware of at this stage. So I can no prize it and say effectively it's a second foundation nudging of uh, of finding the right person, but it still feels weird that it's so dependent on it's, one guy. It's very Deus Ex um, Machina. At the perfect like, time, psychohistory works, yeah. except for I don't think it actually works. In some, there's too many ways it could fail. So I'm gonna have like single people nudge it along. Like we need a starter starter pack for this foundation, yeah. basically. Yeah, and I think the interesting thing, and like spoilers for for later on, but the interesting thing is when he turns up and it, it's not not what's right. happened, and and there's been a deviation, um, and I think that that is actually when really when it starts becoming super oh, interesting yeah. is then it becomes a much more interesting inspection of what is the point of um, you know, what is the purpose of humanity? Kind of is really where I think that uh, the foundation series. Oh, absolutely. Um, because he doesn't foresee a, the actions of a single individual is basically what, what ends up thwarting him. Yeah. I I think that I think that it does draw a lot of attention to what exactly psychohistory is in the second or this third story, third yeah, third story of foundation because yeah. In order to believe, uh, Asimov and Harry Seldon would like us to believe that psychohistory is almost mathematical. Like the way that it's presented is through mm. mathematical equations, it's, mathematical, it's through yeah. symbolic logic, um, it's through like these very, what what we like to think of as very uh, objective ideas, right? Like I can boil down human behavior to something that can be symbolized and calculated, the problem with that as a theory is that it is a form of determinism. It still relies on you to believe that people act in certain ways, um, especially in large groups of people, and that it's very hard to it's very hard to argue with that because we can see patterns throughout history, and so that seems to back up what he's trying to say. But it's also very limiting in terms of looking ahead towards the future because you can excuse anything as being um, like like the determined path or whatever. So what I think Cardin does here, for an example, is brilliant. I don't think it's very ethical, and I have like a lot of really – um, no. big objections to what he's doing that we can talk about. But the problem is, is because Harry Seldon has set up psychohistory as being an unchallengeable science, he's able to wave that away and say it was the only thing I could do. It was determined to go this way, like this is the path or whatever. And so he doesn't have to like think about the implications of what he's doing because he can just wave it away with psychohistory. 
it's an interesting one, right? So the, the conceit of psychohistory is this is what the mob is going to do, most likely, and that includes decay and stagnate, and that if we want to minimize the impact of that these are the this is the this is the set of dominoes that i need to set up right i need to create a world on the edge i need to have it capable and and scientifically clever but limited in terms of its resources i need to it to be surrounded by these uh big but quote barbarous um worlds that it can effectively influence from a from a weak position and then slowly start to take you know control over to because it is set up to create a second galactic empire right like it, it is not a there's not a set of novels that says empire is bad it is a set of no, novels that says empire is good this one it, itself is dying but we need to set up another one um so there are certain assumptions in it because the whole solution is dependent on effectively Harry Seldon's view and vision for humanity. That is, that is it. it. He's the one pulling the strings. He's the one setting up this whole space. And and whether it goes right or or not, it's very much, I you know, it, it, it's setting him up in a god godlike. Right. Position. And the question always is going to be: Is his view of humanity a good one? You know, like, is it is it a particularly is it what you want, you know, for humanity in the future? Because I, I would definitely ask, is Empire a good goal? Is that what we should want? Um, well, exactly. For humanity? Yeah. Because on the one hand, what Isaac Asimov is doing is based trying to base this more on the stagnation that happens at the end of the Roman Empire. Right. He's thinking about the fall of Rome. He's thinking yeah. about the Middle Ages. He's thinking about all of that history but the truth of the matter is by the 1950s empire means something very different than it did to the romans and isaac asimov cannot not be affected by that as a conception and what he what is essentially happening here is this idea that empire represents authoritarian order authoritarian order is better than lawlessness chaos right in the thing right in your words here but we also don't get a lot of um evidence of what this barbarism or chaos or um you know darkness or whatever you want to call it what it looks like at least not in these first three stories um and unfortunately that means that we are having to take their word for it that we're having to believe harry selden that what happens after empire is worse um, and that we want to restore empire as soon as possible. This sounds very colonistic to me. This sounds very like we're the ones with the order. We're the ones with the education. We have to bring it to these barbarians, these savage peoples um, who don't who don't know how to like take care of themselves. It just feels very. Um, it feels like a lot of justification for a very specific view of how humanity should be hierarchically delineated. Yeah, I think I think the only way we see it is via is at the edges. So we see there's we see the people on Anarchian talking about how you know before the foundation they run everything on coal and and oil and nothing worked very well so things are better with 
the foundation they talk about in the previous story about the fact that they're going to that they had a massive explosion in an atomic power plant in in one of the core worlds and their response to it was not to train more people to who understand atomic power but to limit the use of atomic power so the only way we see it is through these hints uh, of worlds that are not our core world but i think the biggest problem is that empire implies emperor and and authoritarianism and therefore we're this is the way things are and authoritarianism yeah. right um, yeah yeah so even if you've got your local rulers there is an implied hierarchy and and it's a divine one and it, and we see um and we see this in terms of Hardin being, as we said, a thirty-plus-year mayor, like this, this concept that a single person can be imbued and can be competent to rule. You know, in Hardin's case, just a million-plus people, but in you know, in Emperor's case, you know, quadrillions of people is um, is one that I don't think Asimov at this stage, anyway, and I do think it changes a bit later, but I don't think at this stage he sees it as a bad thing. I think he's, you know. He he sees he sees it as almost a natural. Yeah, um, and there is this sense too that because that this go, this brings us back to what we were talking about earlier about like is this the only possible way? Like when he says during a crisis that you'll there'll only be one way forward and you'll have to take that that way. That that is so egotistical, but it's also very violent in some ways. Because uh, even though Hardin mm. doesn't like violence, which I think is a very interesting personality trait for him, there is this sense of like we the only way we can get along with these people is to manipulate them, it's to lie to them, it's to make this religion um, out of basic necessities that we can turn on and off whenever we want, um, and. You know, there's no hint of, well, what if we shared? What if we, like, tried to, like, become better allies? What if we encouraged a state of cooperation? You know what I mean? There are other ways that different science fiction writers could have written this. So I'm not sure that I agree with Harry Seldon. <laughs> I think that his I think that no, his no. one way forward is indic more indicative of what he thinks humanity should be than it is about how what humanity actually yeah. is. Um, but we don't get a lot of separation from that at this point because we're only still in those first three stories. So we're still following that that guideline. Yeah. Um, I do find it a little disturbing that his goal is empire, to be honest with you. Um, that just it, of anything, if you're trying to build towards anything, like, why is that your end goal? <laughs> right. Like if you're going to say, like, it's better than barbarism. Sure. But. Also, what is your definition of barbarism? Because I'd really like to know what that is. But two, like, why not build towards something better than empire? Why not build towards something that's more equitable than empire? You know what I mean? Like, it just feels very much like he just wants to get back to the authoritarianism that was so great, apparently, um, before the decay. In Yeah. Sure. And I think... If you think of this as a study in Roman Empire, if you think of it as a reflection of the empires that would have been around when uh, when Asimov was writing, so the British Empire, the remnants of the Russian Empire, the um, growth of the American Empire, um, these were the things he was influenced by, and yeah. I think his view was uh, obviously very Western European, and I don't I don't think that's like 
saying anything no. particularly controversial about and very masculine uh, as we've already writing. as well yeah and very masculine as as discussed and and again that's a reflection of a sort of um <laughs> we're, we're just i think we're just about out of um every man thinks about the roman empire well we're, heck, world war ii had just happened so was. we didn't have all of the men thinking about world war ii yeah. yet <laughs> which is what we have now <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> Exactly. Um, yeah. Um, but yeah, but you know, obviously, as someone who's born in Russia as well, so he, you know, he's 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 coming out of of, um, uh, and I think he was born literally just after the right. Russian Revolution. Well, and so, there's just so much. Yeah. I do want to talk about this actual religion because I think it's really interesting. But there's so many uncomfortable parallels between using religion as a way of basically colonizing these planets because whether or not Cermak eventually invades mm-hmm. them or not, it's beside the point. They're in control. They have effectively made these these planets theirs, um, whether they call it that or not. But the problem is, is that there's too many uncomfortable parallels between what he's doing here and what all of those European powers did in Africa, especially where they used Christianity mm-hmm. as a way of like controlling the populace. Um, and so I can't not think that he wasn't aware of that, like as somebody who studied history and as somebody who like thought about history. So it is a little disturbing. And again, maybe this is because he doesn't want to write perfect characters or whatever, but it is a little disturbing that Hardin's immediate Hardin and Selden basically immediately are like, oh, religion, we can take over these countries using religion. And it's not even a religion we believe in. Yeah, and I think they try and set it up as unlike, or maybe not unlike, but as a as an alternative to the colonialism, or the religious based colonialism of, um, of European powers, or frankly of Jap- Japan. Oh, yeah. um, historically, in in some ways as well, like it's not not a unique uniquely European thing. Their point here was, well, they were actually invaded first, right? Like it was it was Anacreon and the invaded that makes it all right foundation first, <laughs> and therefore there therefore it's okay. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so um, so that he's trying to set it up as justified, but it's still very it sits very uncomfortably in 2024 in perhaps a way that it wouldn't have done in 1950 when it was kind of assumed as still yeah exactly um yeah i don't think there was a lot of post-colonial studies um (laughs) going on in 1951 so i mean (laughs) i'm not saying like he would have been thinking about all the implications but it does have echoes of that i think um that are really Difficult yeah. to read sometimes. And at the, you know, at, at the end, he, at the end, he also does, you know, he is clearly saying, "This has got you this far; it gets you no further." I did like, like that. I did like that. Selden now. said, "You can't yeah. overuse this because nationalism is like an opposing force," um, which is mm. also a very European way of looking at the world because Europeans invented nationalism. But at the same time, it does make yeah. sense, like in terms of what he's doing in this project. Uh, I I will also just briefly mention, because we were talking about authoritarianism, this also feels very Plato's Republic to me in some ways, in terms of like, so this is like the best way to set up a hierarchy of power, like this, these are the people who you should have in charge. Um, You know, you could set it up as like, like a religious way, the noble lie of like, you know, telling the populace this is what how it is, so they will obey. 
um, there there is a lot of that sort of worship of authoritarianism as this like, um, mo- like I guess motivating power or galvanizing power. Um, it, it's very it's very interesting to me that he is being influenced by these other like Greek and Roman classics as well. Yeah, he, it's. I think the the interesting thing with Foundation, again, I think one of the most interesting things about Foundation is how he starts off writing these three books and then goes, hang on, I've got another idea, and starts weaving that in. Um, but he, certainly in these books, he is setting up an elitism. He's setting up a, you know, a, a class system of, in this case, it's the Foundationists who basically take the smartest people from all the worlds, train them up in the priesthood, send them back credulous, and then the smartest of the smartest, they keep basically on terminus to to like become part of the ruling class. And the second foundation itself is, uh, as we sort of like to see, is is sort of set up to be this elite group who can control and manipulate and, and run um, uh, run humanity yeah. effectively. So he's definitely playing this this elitism concept and it's only after sort of you know 20 30 years he's suddenly like i've got another idea and i'm gonna see how that um yeah yeah i think that that's interesting i do also think yeah because they they have as a class the foundationists are exempt from a lot of things it's like everybody has to believe in this religion except for the foundationists you know everyone has to abide by yeah. these rules or their water and electricity will get turned off, but they can't do the same to the foundationists, right? Um, they're, the foundationists are never mm. in any danger, um, you know, and so it's... And this, uh, and the foundationists are completely oh, yeah. ignorant of that They're as so well. fucking like, they're privileged. Sat, they're set around... <laughs> like... <laughs> exactly. They, uh, you know, the the, the chapter where um, Sir Mac and... I've, I can't remember his name. Bort. Bort. Um, uh, uh, and Bort is trying to explain to him that it works. So Mac is kind of like incredulous to <laughs> to to that concept. He's like, but they know, but it's tricks. It's like, yeah, but it doesn't matter that it's tricks if it works, right? Like, which is which is sort of again a um, Arthur C. Clarke, any uh, you know, any science indistinguishable from magic. I uh, do situation. love this though. The idea of ritual versus understanding of science, I found very interesting because Hardin points out that they don't have to understand how the science works in order to use the technology, which we as a, that's probably more true now than it was in Isaac Asimov's day. Back Mm. in Isaac Asimov's day, like people didn't have technology like we do in their houses. Like I would not know you like in 1951, right? Because there was no internet, there's no computers, you know, there's, there's computers, but they're not personal computers, right? In order to use one, you would have to know how it works. You would have to understand it. But now like, I don't, can't say I understand how my phone works, you know, not really, but I use it all the time. And so the idea of like these people, they do all the things, they they manipulate the machines, they know how to do all of that, but they don't really understand how the machines work. Um, that's a that's another case of like a knowledge class, right? Everybody on Terminus understands the science, but nobody on the other um, planets do. So yeah, it kind of feeds, like you said, into the 
you know, science is just, you know, magic that we haven't, you know, or magic is just science we haven't like figured out yet. But it's like the reverse of that. It's like taking science and like making it magic, like purposely like obscuring that, that understanding. And it's one one step away from a cargo cult, right? Where you're doing the ritual because you think it summons. I mean, basically, that's what, uh, what's his name? Uh, Apparat? That's basically what Apparat is doing um, in the ship, like in a spaceship, is that he's like, you know, pulling the levers and stuff, but he's basically, he actually believes that he just cursed the ship. (laughs) Like, you know, and so it's it's a really interesting way of interpreting taking scientific interpretations and making them into those rituals. All right. Well, I think we've been talking about things that make us think. Um, Is there anything else you want to bring up around that? I think the only other thing that I thought was really interesting was Hardin's anti-violence stance, um, which Lee pointed Mm. out is kind of hypocritical of him because he did put through a violent coup. I mean, nobody died as he pointed out, which again is not a great excuse, but, uh, yeah, it's very much. Yeah, nobody died. Right. So like he, he stays the coup. <laughs> but, but I do <laughs> as much as I find what he does to not be a moral choice. I do like the idea of being co- like very committed to a nonviolent solution. Like he never is militarizing terminus, right? He's not, at no point in those 30 years no. is he like creating a weapon stockpile or training an army or making, you know what I mean? He's very committed to this idea of like, we can solve these things through nonviolence. And I, I do find that very admirable. And I don't think it's something you find in a lot of sci-fi books around this time, because a lot of sci-fi around this time was very militaristic. Um, it was very like we, you know, yeah. uh, adventures in space, shooting at each other, you know, like navies. <laughs> but Asimov here is doing something that's so different from that. It's so it's almost categorizing militarism as part of the barbarism, as part of the the uh, decay itself. And that's the part that I found really interesting is just um, him kind of standing out as this person who is willing to do other things besides violence, is willing to try um, to find a solution that doesn't involve the military. Yeah, I, I, think it, I, I think it's even more than that. I think he thinks that actually if they had militarized, they would have made themselves yeah, a bigger target. Like militarization, because violence right. begets violence, right? And I think that, um, I think it's fascinating. It's one of the reasons I was... Uh, again, for when you watch the series, but it's one of the reasons I'm so frustrated at the adaptation choice of Salvor Hardin to be someone who runs around with a gun on their shoulder yeah, all the time. And I think that it's just not, it's just a very different character. And I think that, I do think that it is limiting. Uh, and I think that it is, um, yeah, I think it is slightly deluded because I I think violence is going on around Hardin quite often, and I think he's sort of allowing other people to get their hands dirty rather than rather than there being no violence. But I do think his instinct that they not build up military, that they not you know that you know even the coup against uh, Venus against Anacreon. You know, no one dies apart from Venus, and Venus kills himself. Right? It's you know he takes control of that whole thing without 
without death, without the death of, of, of particularly civilians. So um, I think it's a fascinating character and it's a fascinating trait to not not even foreground, but like make the core tenant of the of the character be so anti-violence, anti-violence or certainly anti-sort of structured if violence. If only he could have gone a little bit farther down that path, <laughs> maybe, maybe it would have been even more interesting. Definitely more utopian, for sure. <laughs> yes. All right. Okay. Should we jump on to then just a, a little last bit of what we what we found joyful? Because I do, as you know, as you know me, I do like to say, you know, what? Why do why why do people hate joy? Why but do why do people love joy? Love joy? So what? what uh, we... I I have on my notes. See plot yeah. number summary number six, which is the the like, whole interaction <laughs> between Harden and Venus when when Harden is just being so smug and just so. Um, <laughs> Just so completely unbearable, <laughs> really. But but it, it is very funny, and I really, I mean, it did make me laugh, and I really enjoyed it. Um, but again, like I just think for all the messiness, like Harden is a really great character, and like you could totally see someone like this existing yeah. and being in control. Um, so it, it is really fun to read him, even if you don't like agree with him all of the time. Um, and you know what? Despite what I said earlier, competence porn makes us feel good, right? Like having someone be right, yeah. it feels yeah. good. So, you know, I would definitely say that brought me a lot of joy. And that, that's probably the thing that brings me the most joy of these like first few stories of Foundation. Um, and I think I mentioned... It's why why I keep yeah, watching yes. the West Wing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, and I think I mentioned this earlier, but I just love his characterization style, like... Just he creates such distinct characters, and yeah, some of them are one note because these are short stories, and you can't, you know, invest everything into every character. But it's very easy to very quickly get up to speed with who these people are, and I think that mm. that is due in a, a large part to him being able to just give us these scenes where we have these conversations between people that just reveals everything about them. And um, I just, you know, it's always good to read somebody who knows how to do that. Yeah, I agree. I think his ability to create memorable characters in short stories is truly, you know, truly phenomenal. And uh, not all of them hit. I don't think Gal Dornick is particularly interesting. I'll be brutally honest. I think that, uh, but I think if you think of that first story as the Harry Seldon story, then he hits. I think Salvor hits from these two. I think that um, Hober Mallow hits when we get to him as well. So, um He's great on that, and uh, I'm I'm going to make one comment, which I also made when Melissa and I were, re- were reviewing the show, which was that Polly Verasov, um is a character adapted in the show in the second season. He's played by um, a guy called Corvinda Gear, who was um, along with Mira Sayal, um, who's recently been in like Wheel of Time and The Sandman and Game of Thrones, one of four British Asian comedians in a in a sketch show called Goodness Gracious Me. Um, which probably I'm not sure how well it's dated now because how well does 90s comedy yeah. date in most cases, but it was a, a massive thing in sort of bringing British British Asian comedy and British Asian voices to the forefront of UK society. Um, and so anytime any of them pop up in TV, um, I love them. So I'm happy always happy to see yeah, it and no, I always I have to bring that. it up.
All right. Well, I was kind of thinking my normal episodes are 10 minutes. So if I talk to someone about these, they'll be about maybe half an hour long. Okay. So we're, we're an hour and a half. Actually, it's really funny. After the last time we did, I did was on this podcast for an episode. I walked out and came over to my roommate, Elise, and I was like, Lazi and I should not be on episodes alone anymore because we just talk, 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 talk the whole time. <laughs> we just have interesting things to say. <laughs> I adore it. It's a it's a, a truly joyful thing for me to do. So I am I'm I'm happy for every second. Um, okay. Um, so thank you thank for joining you. both of us. Uh, you can find me at at sorry. <laughs> no, you can find me at Lozymandius on Blue Sky. You can find the podcast on Blue Sky and Instagram at Asimovcast. The theme music is courtesy of Alexei Chastillon from Pixabay. Our new logo is courtesy of Spurts. Please email your thoughts, what inspires you, and where you find joy in Asimov to asimovcast at gmail.com. Tessa, where can people find you? You can find me on You can find me on my other podcast, Nanny Ogg's Book Club, which is my Terry Pratchett podcast. My friend Nigel and I are reading through all 41 of Terry Pratchett's Discworld novels. Um, I'm not sure when this episode is going to come out, but I'm currently working on editing our recording of Thud. I'm hoping that that'll come out around mid-February. So depending on when you hear this, Thud might be might be available. And Where's My Cow? I should mention we also talk about Where's My Cow. Yes. Oh, so awesome. uh, that you can find that on Blue Sky at Nanny Ogg's Book Club or wherever you get your podcast. I also, uh, every season, guest on Lazi's podcast, Fangbangers. I love it. It's show about true blood i'm sure you'll talk about it um so you can also find me on that <laughs> as well um you can find me on blue sky letterbox storygraph at the by paradox uh perfect plug for the uh, horny chaotic podcast that myself and elise uh, as, for, as mentioned and a bunch of our friends do about the horny chaotic hbo show third season so please up. check out bang bang <laughs> Yeah, we will start recording the third season in a couple of weeks, um, which I believe is the Werewolf Joe Manginello, um, uh Alcide season. So that should be fun. So that's uh, Fangbangers with a Z podcast. Um, and I will also say that um, Tessa's uh, uh, Nanny Ogg's Book Club podcast is a lot of fun. Thud is a great uh, story as well. Um, the Where's My Cow as someone who has two children and has been through uh, small children books, it, there are genuinely books that are exactly the same as Where's My Cow. Um, so I'm looking forward to that. Uh, next week, we will be called, talking about The Traders. I say next week, I'll be brutally honest, I'm not doing these weekly anymore, so I'm going to change my script for that. Uh, go now. Do not harm humanity or by inaction. Allow humanity to come to home.